As Chris said earlier, my name is Brad Merchant. I get to serve as one of the pastors at College Park, and I just, I love this church. I love your pastors, love the people on staff. Just so good to be back. Really a privilege. And uh, to be here on the last Sunday of 2020. Can you believe that? Um, it's the last Sunday. All of us are rejoicing inside that this year is now coming to a close. And um, I get to speak to you. This is the last sermon you'll probably ever hear for the year. Hopefully not ever, but for the year. And I want to speak to you about the hardest thing you will do in 2021. Nothing harder than this. What is it? Seven letters, two syllables, one word. Waiting. Waiting. Why is this going to be the hardest thing you do in 2021? Well, let's be honest, none of us like waiting. Superficially, this is why we hate traffic, love Chick-fil-A's drive-thru efficiency, get upset when our Amazon package doesn't arrive in two days, and go to the 15 items or less checkout line even though you have a cart overflowing with 50 groceries. You know who you are. We do not like waiting. But in the Bible, waiting is actually a sign of faith. It's not efficient, but it's effective. It doesn't feel good, but it is glorious. It doesn't often seem like it's effective in the moment, but in the long haul, it always produces fruit and good things. And today we enter into a story in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, of a man who was asked to do the hardest thing you and I will do in 2021, and that is wait. Wait. Not on a resource or a package, but on God. And as we dive into this story, we will discover, I believe, a three-part answer to this one overarching question, which is this. What does it really mean to wait on God. What, is it, what does it really mean to wait on God? Past the cliches, what does it really mean to wait on God? So if you haven't already, I encourage you to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 7 as we dive into the story, beginning in verse 1. It says this, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Okay, a little context here. Long before Isaiah chapter 7, we learn that God's people were divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. During this time, the evil Assyrian Empire, an empire known by historians as, quote, one of the most bloodthirsty and cruel nations in the history of the entire world, have their eyes set on Israel, Judah, and neighboring Syria. So what do they do? Well, the nation of Israel and Syria decide to join forces to, to take out Assyria once and for all. So Israel and Syria come to Judah to say, hey, we're going we're to take these guys out finally. Would you join us? But King Ahaz, the king of Judah, he had, no doubt, he had heard the stories of the Assyrians, how they would wipe out entire nations, how they would cut off the heads of their enemies and then toss them at the entrance of the conquered city for fun. And he thinks to himself, I want no piece of that. 
So Ahaz refuses Israel and Syria's offer. And what do they do instead? Look at verse 2. The house of David was told, Syria is in league with Israel. What does this mean? It means that Syria and Israel decide that if Judah isn't with us, they're against us. So here they are. Here they are. The nations, the armies of Syria and Israel marching toward the nation of Judah with one mission, to conquer the nation and kill the king. So what happens when Ahaz, King Ahaz, king of Judah, gets this news? What does he think? Good verse 2. It's quite graphic. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Translation, he's scared out of his mind. Why? Because two massive armies are heading his way and they won't stop until he's dead. Verse 3. What happens next? The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shahir Jashub, which, by the way, if you're pregnant, great name for a kid, great name for a kid, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Verse 4, what is he going to do? And say to him these words, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stubs of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Why? Verse 5, because Syria with Ephraim, another way to say Israel, and the son of Remaliah has divided evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. What's happening here? Ahaz is obviously scared out of his mind. We can picture this, can't we? He's in his kingly quarters, pacing around, back and forth, wondering how he's going to survive an attack from Syria and Israel. And in the midst of this, of all of his fear and panic, God sends Isaiah to him with a message Verse 4, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Why? Verse 7, we just read it. For it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. Which brings us to the first answer to this overarching question. What does it really mean to wait on God? Well, first it means this. It means trusting when I can't see him working. Trusting when I can't see him working. In the midst of Ahaz's shock, fear, and worry, God comes to him and simply says in so many words, trust me. From our perspective, this seems relatively easy, doesn't it? After all, Ahaz is being attacked. There's nothing he can do. God has already promised to protect him. What should Ahaz do? Well, obviously, he should wait and trust God, right? Pretty easy. End of story. But, but let's for a moment put ourselves in his shoes. From Ahaz's perspective, the armies are still marching. His fear is still growing. And there appears to be no sign of God intervening anywhere. And I wonder, can you relate? 
Do you find yourself listening to this message in the midst of a circumstance where it feels as though God is inactive? Sure, you know God never sleeps or slumbers, but if you're honest, it feels as though he's taking a really long nap. And now, after each day passes, you're starting to wonder, in the back of your mind, does he even care? You know, one of Satan's oldest and most cunning tricks in the book is to get in the ear of Christians who don't see God at work around them and whisper these words. He's not trustworthy. Again and again and again. So maybe you you come to church today or you're listening online and you are, you're barely holding on. And you're wondering, in the back of your mind, like King Ahaz, can I really trust God with this? Can I really trust him? If that's you, there's really good news. The Bible actually tells us there are more reasons to trust God than to doubt him. In fact, we could spend the rest of today and this week and this month and this coming year talking about all these reasons. But if you're taking notes, I want you to jot these down real fast. Three quick reasons you can trust God today. Three reasons you could trust God today. Number one. He's faithful. He is faithful. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, if we are unfaithful, he remains, say it, faithful. For he cannot deny who he is. Listen, we can trust God because he never acts out of line with his character. He is always loving, always gracious, always wise, always. Never takes a day off from being himself. Listen, God doesn't have mood swings. We have mood swings. If you don't think you have mood swings, nudge the person next to you, they'll tell you, you have mood swings. Mood swings, where it's not like God gets up in the morning after a bad night of sleep and he thinks, and you come to him and you're asking for things and he's like, you know, you're really driving me nuts. Can you go sit in your room for a little bit? That's not God. Why? Because Hebrews tells us he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. And that is really encouraging, isn't it? In the midst of life's doubts and discouragements, he's, he remains the same. He has always been, always will be, and currently is faithful. So three reasons you can trust God today. First, he's faithful. Secondly, he's wise. He's wise. Psalm 104 Verse 24, I love this. Oh, Lord, what a variety of things you have made. In wisdom, you have made them all. See, chapter 40, verse 28, have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his wisdom. Think about this for a moment. God has never made a mistake. Have you thought about that? Never. He's never blown it. God has never had this thought. I should have done that differently. Never. 
Why? Because he is, he is all wise. He knows exactly what to do, when to do it, always. He is all wise. Three reasons we can trust God. First, he's, he's faithful. Secondly, he's wise. Third, I love this one. He's good. He is good. Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust him. God is the very definition of goodness. Listen, if you spend enough time with me, you'll find some good. Some. In there somewhere. You'll also find a fair bit of pride, selfishness, stubbornness, and foolishness. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. But listen, there is, there is nothing in God that is not good. God is the only one, when you spend more time with him and get to know him more, when you get into the secret closets of his being, you know what you find? More goodness. It's just spilling out of him. It's who he is. It's that the goodness is his heartbeat. It's who God is at his very core. So what does this all mean? It means that because he is faithful, wise, good, and a whole host of other things we could talk about this morning, we can trust him. I have a toddler at home. Some of you, one of you should have warned me that a toddler's a lot of work, a whole lot of work, feel tired every day. It's like a full-time job. And whenever I can't see him for more than 10 seconds, you know what I do? Freak out, freak out. Because if I don't see him for 10 seconds or less, you know what? He's up to something not good. <laughs> he, he's gonna hurt himself. He's gonna damage something in the house. Chances are he's up to something that's not very good. God is the opposite. God is the exact opposite. Waiting on God means that when we can't see him working around us, you know what we can always trust? That even when I don't see him, he is always up to something good. Always. Or in the words of Charles Spurgeon, he said, when I cannot trace his hand, I can trust his heart. When you don't see him around you, when it seems like he's He's sleeping on the job. You know what we do? We trust his heart. We remember he's wise, he's faithful, and he's good. We can trust him. So back to the story. What's, what's happening here? Well, remember, there's two opposing armies. They're marching towards Judah, ready to take down Ahaz, and God promises that he will deliver him. All Ahaz has to do is wait. But evidently, Ahaz had other plans, and waiting on God was not one of them. So Isaiah says to Ahaz, look at verse 9. He says to him, if, Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. To put it another way, Ahaz's faith in God's plan is shaky at best. After all, in a manner of days, two powerful armies will be on his doorstep calling for his head, and it doesn't appear God is doing anything to deliver on his promises. So what does God do? It's really gracious of him. Verse 10. I hope you're looking at this because this is an amazing part of the story. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Pause there. Aren't you so grateful that even in our rebellion and our pride, God continues to speak to us? <laughs> it's not like he says, well, you didn't listen the first time. Forget it. You're on your own. He, it's actually a sign of grace. 
that he keeps speaking. He does that with Ahaz. And what does he say? Verse 11. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. In other words, God says, Ahaz, I dare you to trust me. I dare you. In fact, so much, in fact, that I'll give you any sign you wish to show that I'm going to do exactly what I say. You name it. Wow. What an incredible opportunity. Here's here's the God of all things speaking to someone like you and me saying, "I, I see all of your fear. I want you to trust me. Ask me to do anything. I'll do it just to prove that I can do whatever I say I do. I want to do. So what, is, what happens here? Well, we're going to find out in verse 12. But what I find interesting is, think about this. Ahaz could have asked for anything. Think about it. Any miraculous sign. Nothing's off the table. A burning bush. Turning water into wine. Dissolving a mountain. Having Brad Merchant do 10 push-ups. You name it. Anything miraculous nothing's off the table. So what does he do? Verse 12. Great opportunity, Ahaz. Don't blow it. Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. Why? And I will not put the Lord to the test. On surface, just doing a quick reading, we would think, well, this is a really humble response. After all, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16 says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Isn't he just obeying the Bible? Yet wrong. Because it's not Ahaz that's putting God to the test. It's God who's putting God to the test. And he makes the rules last time I checked. So he's putting himself to the test. So when Ahaz refuses to ask God for a sign, he's not exhibiting humility, but pride. Why? I think commentator Ray Ortland sums this up best when he writes the following. Quote, God hands him a blank check, but Ahaz refuses to cash it. Why? He doesn't want to trust God. Sure, he puts it in pious language, but it's all quick-thinking, diplomatic hypocrisy. He knows there are strings attached, and if he lets God in, God will take control. Simply put, Ahaz knows it is risky for him to surrender to God's plan. He knows this. After all, he doesn't know the what, when, how of God's promise to deliver him. So what does he do? Well, we learn later on in the story in verse 20 that it's really tragic. Ahaz calls on Assyria to help him fight off Israel and Syria. But what what happens in the end? Assyria conquers the nation of Judah, and Ahaz's life is inevitably coming to a quick end as a result. Which brings us to the second answer to this question. What, is it, what does it really mean to trust God? Well, first, it means trusting when I can't see him working. But secondly here, it means surrendering when I don't know his plan. Surrendering when I don't know his plan. Jesus, take the wheel. Not going to sing it, don't worry. Jesus, take the wheel. Is an easy song to sing. Hard truth to live. Very hard truth to live. The fact of the matter is, we like being in control, don't we? When we are the chairman of the board of our lives, we like that feeling. 
because we're able to avoid future obstacles, avoid failure, and manage our lives in such a way that we appear successful to others. And isn't it true that at the end of the day, we just like being in charge? The temptation here that Ahaz readily fell into and the temptation that we are all this morning tempted to fall into is the lie, believing the lie, that states the following. My plan is best. My plan is best. Ahaz believed this, and soon, what's going to happen? Well, we learn in verse 20 and later on, soon Ahaz will learn a lesson that we all must learn at some point, and chances are, many of us already have, and it's this, that the only thing harder, the only thing harder than waiting on God is wishing that you had. The only thing harder than waiting on God is wishing that you had. Listen, it is far, far better to surrender to the God who Ephesians chapter 1 tells us works all things according to the counsel of his will. Even though we don't know the what, when, how of his plan, it's much better to trust him, to surrender to him, to get low before him. And just in case you're wondering, taking matters into our own hands never turns out well. Do you know that? It, it never goes well. In fact, I wonder how many of us still have the bitter aftertaste of taking things into our own hands when we should have waited on him. In fact, one of, I was thinking about this recently, one of the greatest mercies in your life and in my life is God sometimes not giving us what we think we wanted. I really want this, I really want this, I really need this, really need this. And God, in his all-wise omniscience, is saying, you don't really know what you're asking for. It's a mercy that God spares us of such things. Says Tim Keller once said, he said, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. We don't have this omniscient mind. So what do we do? We surrender to his. So maybe you find yourself here this morning in a circumstance that you did not have down in your life plan portfolio. And if that's you, I want to encourage you because today, right now, is a fresh opportunity to surrender, to get low before the Lord, and to say, Lord, I am, I am not wise, but you are. I trust you. It's, it's a new opportunity today to simply say to the Lord, this is hard. I don't like it. I would have never drawn it up this way, but, but I am choosing right now to trust you. Every day is a new opportunity and calling to place fresh trust in God. Or in the words of C.S. Lewis, I love this quote. He says, relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if, catch it, nothing had yet been done. Guys, there is no cruise control in the Christian life. It is not once trusted, always trusted. Yes, it is true. We are a part of God's family. We are secure forever. 
Yet, every day, we need fresh opportunities to trust him. To say, Lord, I, I can't work all of this out in my own strength and wisdom. Therefore, I surrender to you. Maybe the reason God brought you to church today is simply to be reminded that to surrender to him, even when you don't know his plan, is much better than taking things into your own hands. I love the way Joni Erickson Tata puts this. She says, faith isn't the ability to believe long and far into the misty future. That's not faith. What is it? She says, it's simply taking God at his word and taking the next step. That's all it is. We can't know the future, but yet we can, by his grace, take that next step and trust him. Ahaz could have done this. He could have done this. But instead, he, what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands and refuses to trust the Lord. So Isaiah responds to him. Verse 13, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Ahaz had been so hesitant, obviously, to lead the nation of Judah and is now so hesitant to wait and trust God that Isaiah essentially says, not only are you frustrating the people around you, but now because you are not waiting, you're frustrating him. After all, what more could Ahaz ask for? God has given him promise after promise, and now when given the opportunity to ask God for a sign, just to be sure, he refuses and calls on Assyria to bail him out. And what's going to happen? Verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In other words, Judah will experience more destruction than they ever have before. But that's really not the main tragedy. The main tragedy in this story isn't that Ahaz didn't need God's deliverance. It's that he didn't want it. He was a needy man who thought he needed no help. Instead of waiting on God and trusting in his promises, Ahaz rejects him and it ends in his own destruction. But notice the story doesn't end there. In spite of Ahaz's unbelief, God gives one last promise. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself, he's taking matters into his own hands, will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The point here is clear. God is inviting and giving the nation of Judah and all who would come after, including you and me, a sign that God will deliver his people. But his deliverance won't come on the back of an army, but through the life of a child. Which brings us to the third answer to this overarching question. What does it really mean to wait on God? Well, first, it means trusting when I can't see him working. Secondly, it means surrendering when I don't know his plan. But perhaps, most of all, waiting on God means believing he keeps his promises. There are around 3,000 promises in the entire Bible. 
And yet, one of the greatest of them is right here in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does this mean? Well, fast forward in history to the gospel of Matthew chapter 1, where an angel comes to Joseph and says this. We know this story. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And then verse 22 says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then what does Matthew do? He quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, verbatim. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What does this mean? Whereas Ahaz needed deliverance from Syria and Israel, we are in need of deliverance from sin and death. And the way of deliverance is not through might, but mercy. And friends, we are... We are all in need of mercy, aren't we? Looking, looking at Ahaz is a bit like looking in the mirror, isn't it? Left to ourselves, we don't trust God's heart. We live often according to our own wisdom. And often when given grace from God, what do we do? We turn the other way. Brothers and sisters, we don't need deliverance from something outside of us. We need deliverance from sin inside of us. Since the fall of Genesis chapter 3, all of creation has been groaning with this question. Who will deliver us from sin? And Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 maps itself onto that question with a later fulfillment in Matthew 1 with this answer, Jesus. God's promise in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and every, sing, every single promise before and after all find their climax in the birth of a baby. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God are yes in him. So how does this relate to waiting on God? That's the question. Because of, well, here's why. Because of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can all now today, presently, with 100% confidence, believe God keeps his word. And that really matters to two groups of people here today. The first group that it really matters for are those who aren't waiting on God. If you're listening to this sermon and for the first time ever, maybe you've realized, I don't wait on God. In fact, I don't even know him. My friend, if that's you, it is by no accident that you are here or listening online. God sent Jesus to die in your place and deliver you from the tyranny of sin and death. And for you, the first step to believing God keeps his promises is by placing your faith in Jesus. Here's the simple truth. You have a lot of sin. Good news, God has much, much more grace. 
God is rich in grace, and he's a big spender on sinners. And my friend, you qualify. This is really good news. You can go to him. You can go to him. So why does it matter that God keeps his promises? Why is this good news to us? Well, it's good news for those who aren't waiting on God, but this really, really matters for those who are waiting on God. Probably most of us in this room. Listen, whether you're aware of it or not, presently, real time, right now, if you're following Jesus, you are waiting on God right now. Why? Because we live as Christians in between the already and the not yet. What does this mean? It means that Jesus has already come. We believe that, right? Jesus has already come. He has delivered us from the penalty of our sin. But yet, on the other end of the equation, he has not yet delivered us from the presence of sin in us or in the world around us. Which means, here's the Christian life, guys. We simultaneously have hope. Do you have hope this morning? If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a lot of hope. And at the same exact time, we live in a world marred by sin. If sin were the color blue, everything would have a tint of blue to it. Everything. Which means we simultaneously have hope and yet countless reasons to despair. Cancer, natural disasters, death of loved ones, headaches, family conflicts, leafless trees, masks, are all signposts pointing us to this reality that everything is broken. Everything. But, but we don't need to look outside of us to know that is true, do we? All we have to do is take one look inside. And you know what we find? Selfishness, pride, dusty Bibles, prayerless lives, sins that we told ourselves we would not commit again even though we've been falling into them for years. Listen, many of us don't skip into church every Sunday. Many of us crawl in. Because maybe the greatest step of faith for you this week was to actually be here. We might wear our Sunday best, but yet on the inside, we know our hearts are black. See, it is much easier to sing his mercy is more than to believe it, isn't it? So we look outside of us and we grow discouraged and we look inside of us and see all of our sin and all of our shortcomings and all of our weaknesses stacked upon weaknesses. And what do we do? We despair. So what do we do, guys? What do we do? Well, I love Martin Luther. I love Martin Luther. In fact, I've been reading this collection of little letters that he wrote, and the, one of the reasons I love Martin Luther is he, this guy's just brass, tells it like it is. Don't you like those kind of people who are just like, you know, this, here's, the, here's the thing, I'm not kind of shading anything from him, just telling you like it is. It's quite comical. And um, there's this guy who kept writing Luther about five or six times, I think, 
who was just really worried. He was worrying all the time, had a lot of anxiety, and he kept writing Luther. Now, this was like the 14th century equivalent to someone texting you that you don't want them to text you again and again and again. You can block their number. Luther couldn't because the guy at his address was really awkward. So the guy kept writing him. Luther kept writing back. Finally, at the last letter, Luther begins the letter with this line. I love this. He says, Dear Sir, I need your letter like the ocean needs another cup of water. Not very gentle or pastoral, but hilarious nonetheless. I love that. Luther also wrote another letter to a guy who wrote to him who was examining his own heart. This guy was a Christian, but he, he just he kept looking at himself, kept examining his own heart, and he wrote to Luther. He said, Luther, I don't see how Jesus could love someone like me. Have you ever felt that way? If you have, congratulations. You're in the same camp with the spearhead of the Reformation, Martin Luther himself. Pretty good company to keep. And Luther wrote back and just encouraged the man to believe God's promises, to trust him, to look to Christ. And then Luther began to talk about his own experience with doubt, how he wondered often if God, how could God love someone so wicked like me with all of my shortcomings and weaknesses? And Luther came to the end of the letter and he wrote this beautiful line beautiful line. Dear friend, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. Isn't that true? But then he said this, but when I look at Jesus, I don't see how I can be lost. How beautiful. The hardest thing you and I will do this year is wait on God, which means trusting him when we can't see him working, surrendering to him when we don't know his plan, and most of all, believing his, he keeps his promises by doing what? What Luther said, taking one look at ourselves, ten looks at Christ, and keeping our eyes on him, because guys, there's coming a day where we are heading face first into a land of mercy and grace spilling over with perfection and righteousness. But until then, what do we do? We wait on the Lord and we trust him because he's faithful, he's wise, and he's good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. We we need to be reminded that you are, you are indeed faithful, that you are good, that you keep your promises. Thank you, Jesus, that as we, as we go through this life filled with so many reasons to despair, that we can look to you. And when we do, we wonder, how could, it be, how could I ever be lost with he who is so gracious and kind? So fix our eyes on you this coming year. Help us to trust you like never before. In Jesus' name, amen.